0: The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace and your goodness toward us. We thank you that you love us. Lord, I thank you for Goodwill Church and their allowing us to come and to use this space. I thank you for all who have come, Father. And and as we seek together uh, to look into your word, to behold your beauty, the glory of your holiness, how we ask that you would be with us over these next several weeks. Father, draw us close to yourself through your Son in the power of your Spirit. And as we behold your glory and your word, we pray that you would conform us uh, to the image of your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. This class is entitled, Hallowed Be Thy Name. And it's a study on the doctrine of God. And as we begin, I want to pose a question to you right at the outset here as we begin this. And it's just a question for your own reflection. I have to reflect on this also. And that is the question, where does the study of God, the desire to know God, where does that rank on your list of desires? Where where does the desire to know God, and that is to know about Him, not just to know Him, where does that rank on your order of desires within your life and if you're like me you'll be convicted when you look at the order of your desires in life uh, to see where it comes maybe it's not as high as it ought to be in light of that the title because the title of course you know comes from the Lord's Prayer and it's fascinating here in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 Jesus is telling his disciples, this is how you should pray. Now, we know most of, our churches, most of our churches say the Lord's Prayer. And we all know it's not meant to say this is the only way you should pray. You have to pray this every time you meet for church. We do because we say, hey, if the Lord says pray this way, that's probably a good way to pray. Let's do it. But what he is giving us in the Lord's Prayer is he's giving us a pattern And teaching us, and this is what the Psalms are too, by the way. The Psalms are given to you as an inspired pattern to shape your prayers. One of the the benefits of reading the Psalms is in doing it, you you will be trained by the Spirit as how to pray. And when you read the Psalms, I was thinking about this just the other day because on our church Wednesday evening service, we go through the Psalms together and how often it happens. How often in the Psalms... You read the psalmist saying things that you would never pray. And in some ways, it should be convicting. It should be convicting when you hear the psalmist argue with God, for example. And you just think, I would never do that. Um, Well, the psalms are there to shape your prayers. Um, I, I, I especially think of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think, would I ever dare say that to God? And yet... It's in the Psalter. It's given to me under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to train me to pray that when you feel forsaken by God, you cry out to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you let the Lord work on your heart. He doesn't stay that way through the whole psalm. But you're honest before the Lord, you know. Our prayers can be phony. Phony because we say what we think we're supposed to say to God. And then you read the psalmist and they shape you. So the Psalms are there to shape the way you pray, but so is the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus gets with his disciples and he gives them the Lord's Prayer and says, here's how you should pray. And we know it. Our Father. And then thereafter, acknowledging God as Father, then there are six petitions. Six things are asked of the Lord. Jesus Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He says, you pray this way, which, again, they did not do regarding uh, calling out to God as Father. But then it's the six petitions he gives. And what's fascinating about that is the order of the petitions. Again, this is the pattern. Jesus is training us how to pray. And what does he do? Our Father, here's my first request. This should be the first thing. On your heart and mind, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. May your name be sanctified. May your name be magnified. May your name be made much of. Now now again, then we pray for other really, really good things, right? Thy kingdom come. We, we want the kingdom to come in its fullness. We, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, but Jesus is also teaching us to pray longing for the day when the knowledge and glory of God covers the world like the waters cover the sea. And we should long for that, and we should pray for that. And we should pray that the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. We should long for that. And then we pray for these other things, which as John Piper says, these these next three are really prayers so that we can do the, the first three. We can work toward the hallowing of God's name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will. In order to do that, we pray, Lord, feed us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, defend us. Right? Give us this day our daily bread and, and forgive us our debts and, and deliver us from temptation and the evil one. But the first thing is the hallowing of his name. And as we begin together and taking some time to think about the doctrine of God, I guess I want to lay that out for you and me to think to ourselves, is that, is the hallowing of God's name, is the making much of God's name something on the high end of our priority list? Jesus establishes the pattern of our piety and our devotion. This is what should matter to us. And everything else in our lives, in our Christian lives, and even in that prayer, everything else should serve that. This is what you were created for. Again, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. Our confession of faith is the Westminster Confession. The Shorter Catechism is a, you know, all cate- the catechisms were given as like teaching tools for parents and to train their children up. In the, you have the big confession, the Westminster Confession is pretty heavy duty. But the catechism was given to parents to ask questions to their children and that the children would memorize them and in memorizing them, they would become little hooks, theological hooks, for for a child and not only the child but then the adults the larger catechism to hang their beliefs on and to have these little anchor points throughout their life that they could always come back to and what i love about the shorter catechism is the first question is what is the chief end of man what is your primary purpose what are you here for and it's like you just can't get a more fundamental question than that you get that wrong you get everything wrong and the answer is man's chief end is to glorify god and to enjoy him forever that is what you are here for. You are here to glorify God, to hallow the name of God. So the Lord's Prayer is not a mere formal prayer, but to be the pattern of our heart's desires. And we need to ask, Where does is that the order that we have in our life? Is that what we're after? Is that what you think you're after? I'll confess it is not. But this is what we should be praying for ourselves. Lord, make that the top priority of my life. Lord, let that be the top priority of my church. Lord, let that be the top priority of this group, this men's group that I'm with, or this woman's group. This is what we want to do. We want to hallow your name. Because it is our tendency as Christians, much less as human beings, it's our tendency to kind of stop, abort the process at the penultimate really, really good things. Like what we think we should do is be obedient and yes, you should be obedient. But the obedience is to serve another end. The obedience is not the end. The obedience is so that we might hallow the name of God. Or think about things like evangelism. Wally, we've talked quite a bit about Things like missional thinking within a church, having a church that's not looking in on itself all the time, though that's not, I don't want to disparage that because that's a really good and important thing. We want to be caring for our brothers and sisters and thinking about our church, but also we then want to turn and look outward and have a missional vision of the world because what does Jesus tell us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to have this missional look too. We want to take the great commission and say, yeah, we want to bring the gospel to the farthest places of the world and we want to bring it right to our workplaces and to to our families, and all these sorts of things. But why? Why? Why do we want to do that? And I think sometimes we think, well, because we want our friends and neighbors to go to heaven. And that's a good thing. That's an absolutely good thing. It's just not the ultimate thing. We want the gospel to go through the world so that the name of God will be hallowed, right? Again, I want these people to be saved, But I want them to be saved so that they'll join the choir. I want them to join the choir and and hallow the name of God. Missional thinking is good if it does that. If it pushes through just, I want to see people get to heaven and gets to, I want to see people hallowing the name of God because that's what we're going to be doing in new creation together. And everything we do, our work is going to have that dimension to it. And same thing with our Bible study, right? Yeah, Bible study is an important thing. We should be studying our Bibles. But what should be the end? What do we want to be when we come out of Bible study? What do we want to be when when I put down the word of God? I want to be conformed more to the image of Jesus, and I want to be a person who hallows the name of God, who magnifies the name of God. So, as we kind of start here and take our little steps down this road of doing theology, that we want that to be our goal. And, and I want to hit that not only at the beginning here by talking about the title, Hallow Be Thy Name, but I want to come back to it again as we think about the goal of theology. And then at the end, when we think about what I think is the posture, a proper posture for doing theology. Okay, so that's the title of the course. Hallow Be Thy Name, taken from the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to set that for ourselves as a goal to say, Lord, that's the kind of people we want to be, and we want that to be a top priority for us. Now, today, what I'd like to do is basically introduce theology to you. Um, It's a disparaged science within the Christian church today. A lot of people don't think doing theology is a bad thing. We're going to talk about that. I have, I think, three um, objections to doing what we're about to do in here. Three objections to doing theology that I would like to respond to And and really, one, maybe because it's in the back of your mind, or if not, you're going to hear it at some point within your own churches about doing theology. So we'll, we'll come to those. But theology is disparaged within our churches. So what I'd like to do is just introduce the idea today in our couple hours together, and then next week we'll jump into the first section. Again, this is on the doctrine of God. So the kind of things we're going to cover in here are how do we know anything about God? How does he reveal himself? What can we learn from God by these different ways of revelation? How about the way God reveals himself in creation? A question you can chew on for next week so that you can, you know, we can voice some thoughts is, the way God reveals himself in creation, is it sufficient for salvation? What about people who only have that but have never gotten the gospel? They've never met a missionary. What about those people? How are we supposed to think about those people? Um, can you, God is, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Is, the, is, that, is that declaration enough that if somebody just believes in a God that they will be saved? Or is it if they've never heard, heard of a missionary, they're not saved? I mean, so that's a kind of question I want us to think about for next week. Maybe it's a familiar question. Maybe you've already thought about it. Um, so anyway, you can chew on that. We'll wrestle with it for next week. We'll think about the Bible. How is, What is the Bible? I know we know what the Bible is but look at it with maybe a little little with new eyes maybe. I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about how we got the Bible and uh, you know what we are what category should we use in thinking about the Bible so we'll think about that. We'll talk about the character of God. Talk about his attributes. Right? What does the Bible tell us about the character of God? And, and how is the character of God manifested, particularly in and through the work of Jesus? Don't forget, Jesus is the clearest and fullest and final revelation of God. So we want to try to anchor these things within the revelation that we have through Jesus. So we'll think about the character of God. Then we'll think about the nature of God, the Trinity, right? Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But boy, there's all kinds of confusion about, about that, right? Because we, always, we use all kinds of... Uh, of illustrations, right? The clover and the, I don't know, the egg, the egg, the football. I don't know. There's like all kinds of things. Um, things like family relationships. You know, I am a father and I'm also a son and I'm also a brother. You say, yes, that's what the Trinity's like. Um, so we the, these are a lot of illustrations that are used in the church and we need to come and look at those and say, are those good? Are those helpful illustrations or are those heresies? And all of them Have the danger of being heresies so we really want to think what what it means that God is Father Son and Holy Spirit and then we'll wrap the course up by looking at some of the works of God uh, namely his work of creation and what does it mean that God created out of nothing what are the implications of that for us and we will look at the doctrine of God's providence how God sustains his creatures and governs them and during that time we'll ask some other provocative questions we'll ask things like well if God governs all things sovereignly well what do we do with evil right what do we how do we how do we how do we deal with evil and boy you know if you've been a christian for any extended period of time that the minute uh, a national or a a, a, some calamity strikes a mini bang you know where's your good god now um that's something we have to wrestle with these aren't easy things but we'll wrestle with them Uh, what about prayer if god controls everything is it really a point to prayer Try to think about that, um, so some of those kinds of questions are uh, are what we 'll ask, and what about free will? Is there even such a thing as free will we 'll try to you know if we have time get into that a little bit okay so we 're going to do an introduction into what is theology like what are we doing here, and then the, that 's the road that we 're going to go down so I hope that uh I hope it it gets you interested and you see it through all right so let's let 's think here first so so uh this is just what do I have this under? This is uh, just an introduction. Oh, so capital A, you'll see on the uh, when when it comes up there. Uh, first, let's just get a definition. I mean, this might be hard for you to see over there, but uh, but let's just get a defini- definition of theology. What do, what does theology mean? Anybody want to take a crack at it? The the actual word. Study yeah, study. So yeah, right. Yeah, you're a good listener. <laughs> See, I'm, I teach high school. I'm not used to that. See, I just, I say things five times. They still don't know. So this is like really this is new for me. Right? Um, yes, the word theology comes from from two words, right? Theo and logos, right? So and we we use so Theo means God, and you you. Most of, we all know that, but so the root atheist. So a theist is a believer in God, and atheist, theist. Anytime you put generally when you put a in front of something, it uh, it negates it. So that's what we have an atheist. So theo means God, and logos. Now this is a tricky word. Uh, well, it's an easy word on one hand because it means word. It's the word that gets translated word, right? We we know this word best from John one one, right? In the beginning was the word. And the word was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So we use the, we, this, this word gets translated word, but also, um, can you see another, can you see another English word that maybe gets derived from Logos? Logistics. Logistics. Logic, right? Uh, logic. So theology is the logic of God, the study of God, the reason, we're going to reason about God. And hence, that ology gets thrown on all sorts of things, right? Biology and physiology and anthropology. Um, so we're talking about the logic of something, the, the rationale, the reason of God. Now, theology, uh, when we talk about theology, um, we don't only mean the study of God, though, of course, it does mean that. Um, but generally when we talk about theology, there's all different types of theologies. And we're going to, we'll, I'll break them down a little bit for you. But what we're going to think about in here, for the most part, is what we call systematic. Systematic theology. And systematic theology is trying to look at the revelation of God in the scriptures, the big picture of the revelation of God and understand what the scriptures say about different theological subjects or topics and so under systematic theology you would have things like uh, theology proper when you when you put proper after it, what you're saying is theology as it really is right you're talking about theology literally we are literally going to study the Doctrine of God. So this class would be a class on theology proper. But then you would also have a a study on the Doctrine of Man, a study on the Doctrine of Christ, a study on the Doctrine of Salvation. These would be the different categories of uh, systematic theology. Salvation, um, the Church, the End Times, Sometimes a a distinct one, even on the Holy Spirit, and sometimes even a distinct topic on the doctrine of sin. But all these categories would be under the heading systematic theology, and we are just tackling in our 10 weeks that first one. Though, we're going to see a connection, because in talking about theology proper, like John Calvin says, the minute you start to think about who God is, you immediately realize who you are. So we can't talk about God without referencing really coming back and then saying, wow, in light of that, who am I? Um, And the same thing. We can't talk about God without talking about the the man, Jesus Christ, in whom he revealed himself. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father. And so these things are all interrelated, but those are the categories that we would uh, talk about as we look at it. Okay, so just a basic definition. Theology is the doctrine of God. Okay, B. Let's, let me give you a justification for doing theology. So if you were following along, B, we'll call this a justification for doing theology. I should have left theology. It would have worked. A justification for doing theology. And here's what I mean by this. We might ask the question, and maybe you've even heard it asked, why do all that study, this academic studying of who God is, can't we just love Jesus? Um, There is a sense that the minute you start diving too deep on this stuff, the minute you start asking for definitions of words, the minute you start using big theological words, people get all squeamish. And they want to know, can't we just love, why don't we just love Jesus? Enough with all these arguments. Oh my goodness, we're arguing over this doctrine and over that doctrine. Let's just love Jesus. So I think what I want to do here in giving a justification for doing theology and sometimes rigorous theology is in response. That's the voice that I have in the back of my head. The voice I have in the back of my head is the person who's saying, can't we just love Jesus? And put away all the big terms and the fancy things and so forth. So why not just love Jesus? And I would like to give you, I think, um, let's see, uh, three or four reasons why we're going to do what we're going to do in here. And why I think it's important to do what we're going to do in here. The first reason is the greatest commandment. Jesus is asked by those who are trying to snag him. Right? They're always trying to snag him. They're always trying to get Jesus caught in a trap. And so they come to Jesus and say, "Oh, teacher, um, you know, we have a question for you. We've really been wrestling with this one. Can't figure it out. Um, what would you say is the greatest commandment?" And they wait. <laughs> right? They're not. They don't want to know. They just want to trap him. They want him to pit one of the commandments over another one. You know, to say, "Oh, my favorite is don't steal." You know, that's, that's what they're wanting. Aha, we got you. We knew it. You value one over the other. And once again, Jesus, as he always did, just, boom, you know, just pulls the carpet right out from under him. And he, they said, what, what, what would you say is the greatest commandment? It's just, oh, that's easy. And he says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord you God got with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Hey, wait a second. That's not even one of the commandments. <laughs> that's not even one of the commandments. What do you mean? is Oh, Jesus got him, right? The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, it's that that I want us to think about here. When we think about why it's worth the effort. Again, this is all besides the fact that top on our priority list should be the hallowing of the name of God. And so we should do whatever it takes for us to hallow that name. But just for doing theology, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, that one kind of makes sense to us, right? Just preaching through some of the Psalms past several weeks, Psalm 111. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the righteous. Okay, so we get the idea of loving the Lord with all our heart because when we think of love, we think of hearts, right? So the heart for us, right, the symbol of the heart on Valentine's Day, we give, well, if you do, if you're good guys out there. And my wife's like, yeah, right. Um, you, give, you give a box of candy and a heart. You give a card with a heart on it. The heart is the symbol of love. Like, we get that. I think we don't quite understand what the Bible means by heart. It doesn't mean the, the, the emotions, though they're included in there. The biblical notion of the heart is your gut. Not nearly as romantic, Maybe. But but if so, if I said to my wife, "I love you with my just all my guts," um, doesn't doesn't write well on a card. But but if it if I was being sincere, right? It just I would almost be like I don't know how to say it, and I don't know how to get to the deepest part of me, right? I love you with my guts. I love you from from that part of me. I love you with all every part of me. And so, really, in some ways, that and soul are are getting at the same thing, right? But all right, so we get that when Jesus says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart," we're like, yup. And even soul, yeah, right, again, my deepest being, all that I am, got you. Strength, okay, all right, I'm with you with strength, right, with all that I do, with all the energy that I put forward. This is how we're to love the Lord our God. We're to love him with all the energy we have. And then he drops mind in there. We are to love him with all of our minds. Now, it's worth thinking about, how do you love God with your mind? Obviously, I'm going to say by doing theology, so I'm kind of hinting, I know you would get that because you're, you're tracking with me. Interesting, I just asked, I asked my students because I, I do a theology class at Chapel Field also for the 10th graders and asked them, what does it mean to love the Lord with God? What does it mean, what does it mean? I'll, I'll ask you, um, what does it mean for me to love my wife with my mind? So let's get, it, let's get it out of the realm of God for a second. Let's bring it down to our horizontal relationships. You kind of get, if I said I love my wife with my heart, if I said I love my wife with my strength, with my soul, but if I said, if I love, what would it mean for me to love Christina with my mind, do you think? You can shout it out or raise your hand. Or... Okay, so I'm going to want to get to know her, right? Now, we've been married for a while, but I'm still learning. I'm still learning, not at the large chunks I was getting back in the old high school days, right? When the, coming out of high school is when we started dating right after my senior year, and then I was learning a lot, right? We're learning. At that time, when you're first dating somebody, man, you're, you're, learning, you're getting big chunks of info, right? Now, now they've narrowed down as we've been married for a long time, but still, I'm wanting to know things. I'm learning things about her. Okay, any other way that I love her with my mind? Okay. ooh, Oh, boy convicted um (laughs) all right this drill is over all right because yeah because christina's back to like oh this is awesome finally somebody finally somebody's telling him um okay so i put her first that that's really good that's good yes okay so now let's let's get out of bill and christina and let's get back to the lord and because then so we're thinking how do i love the lord god with all my mind okay i should put him first so we just said right hallowed be thy name should be high on the priority list of what, what's important to me, what comes to my mind when I see a situation. And this is where I forget being convicted about loving my wife with my mind this way. I'm just so convicted about loving God, right? My first concern is usually self-interest, right? What, what am I going to get? Is this going to hurt me? You know, What effects is this going to have on me or on these who are right around me? Right? It's immediately right. I'm just right down to these lower. These are really good things. I should care about how it affects me and how it affects my family and so forth. But is is hallowing the name of God? Is God's name? How can God's name be hallowed here? Wow. This is why, by the way. See, this is why my church and maybe some of your churches do. We have confession of sin in our church every week. And you say, yeah, this is why. Because I don't have to sit there and grind over, man, what, okay, what, what, sin, what laws did I break? You broke this one. <laughs> You've been breaking this one all day. Right? When was the last time you put God first? It's hard. It's hard. We're constantly sliding back to self-centeredness. Okay, any others? Loving God with my mind? Through, through prayer, through prayer. Okay, so that would be a means of doing it. That might be how I work out my love for God. Mm-hmm. How did students say, and I, I thought this was really good, purity? Purity of mind, right? That was uh, uh, my student. I said, "Ooh, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't really thought of that. It was really good. I give her credit, Eliana Hughes. Um, yes, to love my wife with my mind would be to keep my mind pure for her, wouldn't it be, right? If my mind is thinking about other women, we've got a problem. I'm not loving her with my mind. My mind should be devoted to her. And so in that way, we love God with our mind. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. And I want to argue, while those other things are all true, part of it is what we're doing here tonight. Now, it doesn't mean, oh, you have to come to a theology class to do this. You can, you're all called to be theologians. That's the point. And this is just one aspect of that. But you're to be a theologian when you open your Bible, right? R.C. Sproul uh, just wrote this series, uh, Everyone a Theologian, or something like that. Or, uh, Everyone is a theologian. Thank you. And I uh, love R.C. And that's great, right? Yes, yes, yes. And that, that's a theologian telling you that, right? Saying, yes, no, you're all theologians. When you read your Bible, you're reading it as a theologian. Now, I have some verses up here just for us to, uh, to think about and, and uh, with regards to, um, to this, about loving God with our minds and making this the thing we're after. So first, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And then here, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. This is what we are to boast in. That is, according to Jeremiah, this is what we should be after more than anything else, that we understand and know. Let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love. Notice we go right to the character of God. We're going to study that. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is what we want to boast in. That I understand, as much as this finite, feeble little mind can do it, I understand the Lord. I know Him. Or 2 Corinthians 10.5, which is the theme verse for our study center, where we are called to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is, that theology, the understanding of God, the understanding of Jesus Christ is to take every thought of mine captive, that it all needs to be funneled in through my theology. And then Psalm 111, Psalm 111, 2. As I said, I was preaching through, uh, I was preaching through the psalm, some of the Psalms, just hitting some Psalms. And I love this. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says, Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord; they are pondered. What do you, what's pondered mean? Okay, think about. Meditate, out. meditate. See, it'd be more. It's more than just. It's more than just a passing thought. To ponder is to stew. Let it stew. To steep, right? To meditate. I always use the idea of chewing. Like don't, don't just don't take the truth of God like my dog Ralphie. You know, I got a Springer Spaniel, and and I, I get a, I get a piece of steak. I'm out there grilling. He's begging the whole night, and so finally I'm carving it up, and I go, like, "All right, Ralphie." You know, I throw Ralphie a little piece. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm the master. You know, I'm throwing him a little piece here, and I want him to enjoy it. And you know what he does? He's just like frantic. I throw him the thing, and it's like just. It's it's just gone. And then he's right back, and I get mad at him. That was steak, Ralphie. You don't just gulp that down. You didn't even taste it. So then I grab another little piece. It's a trick, because then it makes me give him another. Because now I'm like, I'm going to teach you to enjoy this. And so I grab another piece, and I hold it out there, and he goes to get it, and I fight back with it. And I make him chew it. I make him taste this thing. Come on, this is good steak. you got to taste it. When we see the works of the Lord, when we study the Scriptures, when you hear a sermon on Sunday morning, What do you do with it? Is it move on to the next thing? Or do I ponder the works of the Lord? Do I meditate upon them? Do I chew? Do I chew and see what the Lord gives me? And as he gives me nourishment from his word, do I chew on it and extract from it what he has for me? Or like Ralphie, just go gulp it right down and move on. What I love about Psalm 111 is great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by who? By all who delight in them. Do you delight in the works of the Lord? Then it will come naturally for you to ponder them. Do you delight in the Lord? If you delight in the Lord, it will come naturally to you over time to ponder him. So why do theology? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Boast in the fact, if anything, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the fact that you know the Lord. Take every thought captive and ponder the works of the Lord because you delight in it. Secondly, I just said because it is our life. right? Theology is meant to be our life, is to be the source of our life. We, we've already said it. We are meant to hallow the name of God. That is, we are to have the name of God at, God, at the center of our life. You were meant to orbit him. Okay, you, you are what you were meant to be when you are orbiting God. But here's the problem. Our nature wants not to orbit. We want God to orbit us, right? We want ourselves in the center, right? But when we do that, and this is something that if you know yourself, again, so here we're talking about theology, we're talking about man now, because if you know yourself, you know it's your tendency to want to get in there to the center. But the minute we do that, it all falls apart. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? The son was meant in that story to orbit the father. He's on the father's farm, the father's estate. He has everything good when he's with the father. But the father is what the treasure is. But the son wants the stuff because the son wants to be the center. Give me the stuff so I can go have an orbit around me, right? I want to go to the big city and party it up. I want your stuff, Dad. Like God says in Romans 1, he turns them over. We're going to talk about that next week. Here's this. You want the stuff instead of me? Here's the stuff. The sun goes out, and what happens? Thriving and living the good life? Come on, you know better. It all falls apart. He ends up eating with the pigs. We this God is our life and understanding Him and holding Him there at the center or keeping Him at the center for us is our life. Again, a couple texts. John 17, 3. You, you know this text. This is Jesus praying um, uh, in the Jesus is praying and he says this and Father, this is eternal. This is eternal life. That they He's praying for his disciples and for you and me. This is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. That they know you. And that's what we want to do when we study theology. We want to know him. Or then, 2 Peter. This is 2 Peter 1, 1 and 2. It's, it's right in the greeting. 2 Peter 1, I put two, but I'm going to read one and two. So Peter's writing his second letter here. Simon Peter, no, no and I love this too. Paul does this all the time, and just listen to the way he defines it. He describes himself, and you get yes for Peter. He had found his orbit around the Lord. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's you want to know. who I'm addressing you. I'm Peter. Who am I? I'm a sir. I'm his servant. That's how you should know me. Simon Peter, a, I, I'm just. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I. We have a work in Kenya, and um, I remember when we brought three students, Chapel Field brought three students over from Kenya, and I think I've shared this before and, in the Revelation class, but I remember when Gilbert introduced himself. There's three boys, Gilbert, Fanwell and Joseph, and Gilbert stood there at the front of the chapel. I remember sitting back there. I didn't know these guys, and they're introducing himself, and, and Gilbert stood up, and he said, My name is Gilbert, and for you to know me, you must know that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, Wow, what a... <laughs> What an introduction! Like just, I'll tell you all about Kenya. I'll tell you all about me in the orphanage. But you need to know my follow. I just love that, and that's what Peter's doing here. Uh, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith e- of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, listen. Here's his prayer for his listeners: May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, right? May grace and peace to you be, be to you, but how is it going to come? It's going to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Or then again, Romans chapter twelve, two, that this is the very form of our transformation. How are you going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ in the renewing of your minds? We need to fill our minds with good stuff. And there's no better stuff than God and his truth. So number two, it's our life. All right, number three, third reason. Number three, why study theology? Because our God is a God of truth. This is really important for us in an age of subjectivism and relativism like ours, where what is truth anyway? And the minute you say something is true, you're arrogant, right? If I stand, if I plant my flag and say, I think this is true, our culture calls us arrogant right you're a hater if you do that so but this is so and what happens what'll happen to us is we will tend to conform paul says in in romans right do not be conformed to the pattern of this world and it and we tend to view that as doing bad stuff and that's true we shouldn't do bad stuff but more what paul is saying is the way of thinking this happens just organically it happens in our fellowship with our non-christian friends it just happens with the social pressure that is there within our culture in the book of Revelation we call this the second beast there's just a pressure of our culture that presses you away from obedience to God in your thinking right it's like every show you watch on television every advertisement that is telling you you're the center of the world you're the center of the world you're the center of the world don't let anybody tell you differently All of that is just, just, you're, you're soaking in that. That's why you've got to devote yourself to theology because you're soaking in that kind of culture. And the scriptures say, don't be conformed to that. Our God is a God of truth. So Jesus says, oh, wait, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. Truth matters because Jesus is the truth. Our religion, our faith, our worship is about truth it has to matter secondly our god's a god of truth and he hates idolatry he hates idolatry what's the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me and he does not mean no other gods higher than me right before is a tricky word not no other god you can have other gods just keep them as long as i'm first you know This is an open relationship. Go ahead, but I just got to be first among them all. No, no, no. No other gods in my midst. No other gods, period. You are not allowed to have the gods of your imagination. But this goes for theology. Because you are not allowed to imagine God in your image. And that's what we tend to do. We make God into be the kind of God we want him to be. Instead of submitting ourselves to the scriptures and to the diligent work of studying the scriptures and saying, God, help me to understand the God you are, I make him to kind of be the God. That, I mean, we're hearing this in our own culture about what, what, what God accepts and what he doesn't accept because we let our culture shape God to be the way we think he should be. The first commandment says, no other gods before me. And our, this means our theology is important because if God is not impressed with sincere, sincerity that is wrong. If we are sincere in our praise to God, but we're praising him for something that's not true of him, he's not like, well, they meant well. It doesn't work that way. Because we're to love him with our minds. This stuff matters. And we have to be careful, right? Think about the Apostle Paul. He had God all wrong. He was very sincere. He says in Philippians chapter 3, when it came to zeal, man, I would have given anything. I would have given my life. I'd kill people for God. But he had God wrong. Now, what was God saying? Well, at least you were zealous, and that's awesome. And so the fact that you were zealous, I'm going to let that count. No. Saul, he was on his way to hell. And the Lord comes and blinds him and reveals himself to him. And in that blindness, brings him back. And what does Paul, Saul, as he becomes Paul, realize? I had got all wrong. My theology was bad. And in that moment, gets a theology lesson. And then, in coming to see the scriptures in a new light, in the light of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he then goes off to study. He goes for years down in the wilderness to study. And then he comes back and meets with Peter, and he meets with James. He meets with the apostles to be taught and to learn. He realizes, i got to get my theology right. It's all been wrong. And sincerity gets me nowhere. If I'm sincerely wrong, God hates idolatry. And as John Calvin said, you and I are idol factories. I love that. We are idol factories. We can make anything into an idol and we will make anything into an idol. It's in our nature. It's in our bones. So we have to be on high alert for this. And this, again, is why I want to, I'm arguing for a justification. And then also, thirdly, God is a God of truth. And I just point to the apostolic example. You know, the disciples, the disciples were told by Jesus to go make disciples. What's a disciple? What's the word disciple mean? Follower. Discipline. It comes from disciplines rooted with discipline. So there's the discipline of what? If you're a disciple, you submit to the discipline of what? Following. following. But of course, we know, I don't want to be trivial. They weren't just following him around. What were they doing? Huh? Like they were acting like him. They were modeling themselves after him. What were they doing following around that whole time? Yes, they're acting like them. They're learning, they're learning right? They're, they're, to be a disciple is to be a student. To follow and to sit at the feet. And to be shaped, right? To learn from him. The disciples become apostles. Anybody know what the word apostle means? What's that? Um, no, not appointed. Although they were appointed, that's true. I mean, their role with capital a apostles is that they were appointed to do it and that's why no one else can be that so what I heard something Set. sent we get the post in a postal from we get po- our post office that r- same route we send things right an apostle is a sent one so the students the disciples of Jesus become the sent ones of Jesus at the Great Commission those same guys and then some others become the sent out ones. So the students become the teachers. And what does he say to them in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all nations and make disciples. He does, we generally take that as a commission to do evangelism, and it is that. But it's much deeper than that, isn't it? Because he says, disciple the nations, don't just share the gospel with them. Teach them everything I've commanded you to teach them. Right? Take them the full counsel of God. Right? Do theology with them. So let's think then, what do the apostles do? Go read the rest of your New Testament. It's not just gospel presentations. Read your New Testament. These things are rich theological documents. That's some deep theology that they're writing to people who have never heard of Christianity. I mean, they are... Can you imagine? Read that with fresh ears. You're living in Corinth. You're some Greek. You know, you've just grown up on Greek philosophy and here comes this guy, Apostle Paul, limping in and teaching you this stuff and writing you a letter like this. I mean, rich, deep... Think about the book of Romans. The best theologians in the world wrestle years and years getting at the amazing intricacy of that book and the depths of its theology. That's what they do. That's what they were called to do, to make disciples, and they saw that as giving them theology. So that tells me then that we ought to do that same thing. We ought to be engaged in this, not only for ourselves, but we ought to be engaged in it for the sake of the world. We we don't just give them. We tend to do this. Evangelicals just tend to give a gospel presentation, and I don't want to minimize that as if it's not rich and great, but it's like it just requires so much more than that. We have more to say than that. We have more to offer than that. Yes, we want to offer them the gospel, to be sure. But the gospel is not merely Jesus died for me. There's, there's, there's an explanation that goes around that, and we want to take time to share that. Now, if you only have a second with a guy in a train, say it. If you only got a chance. You're, you're getting off the airplane with somebody, and you had a chance to, yeah, take the second. You don't have to go into deep, write a new book of Romans, But if you have a relationship with somebody, we want to drive deeper, and at least in our own hearts we want to do that. Okay, so a justification for doing theology. Now, I want to move then to see some objections, and maybe you've heard these. Maybe you have them in the back of your head. Maybe not because you're here, but um, you're like, wait, I didn't know this was a theology class. Um, Some objections to doing theology. First, the first one that I often hear, I don't know about you, and I heard this when I went to seminary. So I went to seminary. I went for two years just to get my Master's of Theology. That's it. I wasn't planning on being a pastor. I didn't, wasn't planning on getting my Master's of Divinity, just two years and come home. And then I went down there, and all my buddies were staying for their third year. And I was like, man, this stinks. I don't want to go home. So I stayed for my third year and got my Master's of Divinity. And the Lord said, great, you're qualified to be a pastor. You're a pastor. And, and here I am. Now I'm, I'm pastoring. But I didn't plan on it. I just went down to study theology. And when I did, these are the kind of things I would hear. That theology is just not practical. You're, you're wasting so much time in your classroom debating all these things when maybe, and fill in the blank, right? People are dying and going to hell, and you guys are sitting here arguing about theology, or we have other things that we need to be teaching our people and our flock. I remember my brother Dan was once asked to lead a youth Sunday school, and they asked him to pick the subject. And he said, well, I'll do a class on theology. And they said, no, 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 we're looking for something more practical. You know, give kids something that they can really take home with them. You know, give them something about dealing with peer pressure. Give them something about sexual relationships or relationships with their parents or these kinds of things. Right? Those are practical things. And theology just seems so ivory tower. And I really want to push back hard on that. Because what I'd like to ask that person is, was the Apostle Paul impractical? (laughs) Like, was it just a waste of time to write the book of Romans? I mean, what was he doing? He's, he was writing a letter to a church at Rome. He spent so much time doing deep theology. Read his letters, almost any one of them, and you will see the pattern. Deep, rich theology. Take a book of Ephesians. Deep, rich theology for about three chapters. And then the back three chapters, we get all kinds of practical workings out of that theology. Not something, hey, now now, guy's good and we're done with that. Let's get to the really practical stuff. It's taking that theology and working it out. How do we apply this in our lives and so forth? Go look at his books. They all do this. But notice he begins with the rich theology. And that's not the impractical part. It's the rich roots out of which that that practical stuff comes. The, The image I have in my head, when I think about this objection to doing theology, that it's impractical, is the parable that Jesus tells of the wise and foolish builder. Right? Because in that parable, you got two guys and the one, you know, the, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the, 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 the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And so we know the song. And then, and then the, the wind came and the waters rose and the one man's house came crumbling down. Now, now let's rewind. Let's rewind. Right? And we just come to when the two guys are building their houses. Now, if you're just watching them, this one guy looks like he's got his act together. He's a really practical builder because he's building a house, <laughs> right? He's building up. You look at this joker over here and you're like, buddy, because he's digging down, right? He, he's, he's building down. And it just seems like, man, you're, you're way off the game here, man. This guy's got it right. He's the practical one. He's using two by fours. <laughs> and he's building. You're digging, But the goal here is to have a house. Seems impractical. But of course, you know how the story ends. It's this man's house that is rooted and fixed. In the end, proves to be the most practical. Though it didn't appear that way in the beginning. And this is the way it is for us. If we want the practical things within our Christian lives, and this is why, look, again, so many of our churches, we want to have a conference. It's going to be on these practical things, right? some tips and suggestions for being a better parent or being a better spouse or being a better... And these are all really good things. But if we don't root that down into who God is, then again, it's just something that's going to get blown away. It's kind of just floating out there, practical tips. But if we root ourselves in God, if I know who God is, the practicality of my life will work itself out of that. And so the practical... Argument falls flat, in my opinion, and I give you—I give you one other quickly concern I have with people who say that uh, that theology is impractical. The people who want a practical religion end up having a lot of trouble, and I think our kids run into a lot of trouble. Maybe you run into a lot of trouble when you hear people say, "Look, basically all religions are the same." And who are you to say your religion's any better than anybody else? Why is Christianity any better than Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism? Who's to say? Look, there's many ways up the mountain, and A lot of Christians are stymied. We know that's not true. We're just not sure why. We're like, yeah, but... But if you emphasize, if what's most important to you is the practical aspects of the Christian faith, you will not have a good answer because, you know what? Buddhists try to be really good people. They try to be obedient. They believe the golden rule. They're into being good parents, you know, I mean, Hindus are into being good parents. They're, they're trying to do their thing, right? It looks a lot like Christianity. You, you put an obedient Hindu and an obedient Christian, an obedient Jehovah's Witness, an obedient Mormon next to each other, you might have a hard time, except for ethnicity, deciphering which is which. What distinguishes me from a Jehovah's Witness? It's my theology. It's what I believe about the person of Jesus, it's what I believe about the Trinity that distinguishes me. So be careful. Be careful of this business of practicality. It, will, it, will, it has the potential to ruin us because a wrong view of God will have really bad practical implications. I just heard a lecture the other day. Christina and I were listening to it. And the guy was saying, how do you think about God? And he said, if you think about God as like an angry cop, what's your metaphor for God is it an angry dad if you had a really angry father then you might tend to think of God as an angry father just waiting to pop you one right or that that angry authoritarian who you step off the rails and is like bang get back in there or and you and you see so you walking around with that bruised conscience like I'm I know I'm, I know he's probably upset with me and I'm trying to do my best now That's theology. Now you got a wrong view of God. Now, what's going to be the implications of that? It's going to affect the way you act, right? You're going to be, you're going to be you're going to be a legalist. You're going to be focused on do's and don'ts. And I I don't want to fall offline here. No, I can't do that. I can't do this. And you you become obsessed with righteousness, your own righteousness. Your eyes aren't on the glory of God. Your eyes are on your own righteousness. Or you have a free love kind of God. The guy has no standards at all. And you have that view of God, that's going to affect the way you live too. You're not going to care two wits about righteousness. You're not caring about holiness in your life. You're not worried about making sacrifices because you have some view of God in which he's just an acceptor of everybody. But, but notice the view of God works itself out practically. So what's the fix? Get the practice. Go tell the person who struggles with legalism to fix the legalism. It won't work. You've got to convince them to see God rightly. To understand the love of God through the work of Jesus Christ. you got to tell this guy over here who who thinks that God has no standards to look at the cross for crying out loud. He crucified, he poured out his wrath on his only son. That's how concerned he was about justice. Don't you think it matters? How can I treat a God like that and say, oh, nothing matters? But i got to fix it at the theological level. Then the practical things will work out. Let's try to uh, move through these a little bit quicker. But these are important, these objections not only, again, to justify what we're doing, but because you will hear them. Second objection is theology is divisive, and this is a really biggie. Um, you you have all these ideas, and all it does is make Christians fight, and I'm not denying that Christians fight. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we do have to, th- I, w- I want to think through this, because some people use it as a real objection to doing the thing itself. Now, the first thing I, I want to think about this is that That concern, I don't want to dismiss the concern because the concern is serious. And I want to highlight the seriousness of the concern by thinking for a moment about John 17. In John 17, um, Jesus is giving his high priestly prayer. Jesus is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just been with the disciples in the upper room. And he's on his way to the cross. We know, though we don't get it in John at this point, that Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Now, I, we can all relate to moments of great duress in our lives when we've gotten bad news or we're rushing on our way to the hospital or it's just that we're scared about something. Um, we can all relate to that idea of duress. And here's what you and I both know. You get a call that some, somebody you love has been in a car accident and they need you at the hospital now. Your whole world changes. It's like things that mattered two minutes ago don't even care, right? Just the thing I was worried about, gone. Like just my mind is just like laser focused on something and my prayer life is laser focused now. Just everything is just shot in on that. Um, Therefore, when I see Jesus praying and we know the duress he's under because in, in as much as duress as you've ever been, maybe you wanted to, I don't know if anybody's in here, every sweat blood, like where you were under such duress that literally capillaries are bursting and blood is mingling with your sweat and coming down. That kind of duress. And Jesus was under that. He was not scared of crucifixion, though that's enough to put you into quite a panic but Jesus knows that while he's going to have to undergo that he's really gonna be undergoing the full wrath and fury of his Holy Father just incalculable unrepresentable Mel Gibson could do the passion of the Christ but he can't get at that watching the passion of the Christ is hard enough it's just like when Jesus finally dies you are like yes I mean, just, ugh, it's over. I mean, you just pray. He's, I know where he is in the scene. I mean, it's just so hard. And yet that is not, I mean, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the affliction that Jesus is under as he goes to the cross to face the holy fury of his Father willingly. So when Jesus prays under that duress, You get a really keen insight into what matters to him. He he is not praying for extraneous things, just like you wouldn't be on your way to the hospital, right? It's just laser focus. And John 17 is the extended prayer, really, the most extensive prayer we get of Jesus. It's a whole chapter of prayer. And as you know, and your Bibles probably have the breakdown, right? Jesus prays for himself, and then he, he you know, Father, glorify me now with the glory I have with you. Uh, and then he prays for his disciples. I, I ask not that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you preserve them, right? They have no idea what's about to come down on them, to, you know, today. And, you know, because remember, we're in the darkest hours here. And then it's just such an awesome thing. In, in verse 20, he prays for you and for me. My prayer is not for them alone. That is not for these disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is in this laser focus and he's praying for us. It's really humbling. What is his prayer for us? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow. In that moment, his prayer is not, I pray they don't get sick. I pray they don't die. I pray they don't get into trouble. They don't suffer. Nope. That's going to happen. My prayer is in and through all that, that they be one. And not with just some vague unity. But there would be one Father as you and I are one. You in me. I in you. They in us. <laughs> wow. That is intimate unity. And he doesn't pray that just for the Presbyterian Church in America. Or the United Reformed Church. Or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Or... He prays it for the church that we are we are to be one as Jesus and the Father are intimately one so i don't want to minimize the concern of this criticism or this opposition because because our unity really really matters we i don't think we care enough about it even even people's desires for unity doesn't get to the levels. And notice, Jesus anchors the message of the gospel to it. May they be one as we are one, so that the world may know that you sent me. That our unity becomes, you know, we're so interested in gospel presentations, Jesus says, he doesn't say give them the message, give them the campus crusade, the four spirits, he doesn't say any of that, that's all fine, do it. But what is really going to be the thing that drives it home? Our unity. In that the world will know. Look at us. A bunch of oddballs, a bunch of people who, who might not normally be together, people of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every economic status. Right? When we come and just love each other and we're united in Christ, that's just powerful to the world. Should be. It's that we're not that really takes away from the from that witness. So I guess I I, want, I don't want to minimize I want to say this objection makes me sick. But I do understand the concern. It is a serious one. Now, the however, however. So, on the one hand, we want to be careful that our theology does not start chopping up and dividing Christians. And we know it does tend to do that. Right? I'm Presbyterian. I'm not Baptist. Why? Well, because I believe we baptize our babies. I believe our covenant children get baptized. and My Baptist brothers don't. So, they got their church i got mine now how do we handle that what do we do about that i have to be careful when we do this thing called theology that i don't let that get down there and drive a wedge between me and my baptist brother however there are times theology must divide and this is the tricky balance that in our culture we get all squeamish about there are times theology must divide it's not an option And I have in the scriptures the picture of the Apostle Paul who says, I confronted Peter to his face. like He was fighting words with the Apostle Peter. And he said, I tell you right now, if Peter or even an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel, may they be damned. Whoa. We don't talk like that today. Well, who am I to say my way is better than anybody else's way? You know, that's the way we talk. And he was like, no, I told Peter right to his face. Or how about Jesus with the Pharisees? Man, there were theological differences between them. And Jesus like, you are whitewashed tombs. You are snakes. He comes in the temple. He's flipping tables over. This is the side of Jesus we don't often think about. Jesus, meek and mild. He he wears a whip. He gets a whip. and You know, he's snapping whips. (laughs) at I mean, that's Jesus we're talking about. Jesus, wow, he took this stuff seriously. Sometimes theology must divide. I already said it. Theology must divide me and my Jehovah's Witness neighbor. I'm sorry, I can't cover up the theological difference. I can like you. I can be neighborly to you. I can stand with you on certain, if you want to stand with me on the abortion line, you know, I'll do that with you. But I'm sorry, I can't worship at the Kingdom Hall. I cannot. I remember running into a Jehovah's Witness one time. We got talking, and he said, "Well, together we as Christians." I was like, eh, "Stop right! Well, hope, you, um, you back it up there. What do you mean we as like? What do you mean we as Christians? You threw yourself in that group, and because I'm, I can't go there, I can't call you brother. My Baptist friend, I call brother, but I can't call my Jehovah's Witness friend brother. I just can't. The, to do that is to disregard." Theology. So therefore, here's, how, here's what I want to push us to as we kind of enter in and, and kind of think about theology with fresh minds. We must have a sense of proportion. We must have a sense of proportion. We must be able to distinguish within our own study of theology central, foundational, non-negotiable doctrines and then peripheral doctrines that are really important, worth Battling over. I want to battle with my Baptist brothers. Let's talk about baptism. Let's not shy away from it because we're, we're scared. Let's talk, but let's love each other doing it because we're brothers. Right? I'm, my Baptist brother is a brother because baptism, your view on baptism, is not there at the core. If we could draw some concentric circles, right? You know, of theology. See, what, what do you think? Let's, let's, let's throw it out among us here. What's in here? Trinity that's one the Bible. okay the Bible is the inspired word of God okay what else what else do I have to go to the mat for I cannot call you a brother or a sister if you deny this I'm not gonna hate I'm not gonna be angry about it um okay the virgin birth that was a big big one in the early 20th century the virgin birth okay salvation through Jesus Christ. okay yes yeah, salvation through Jesus Christ maybe justification by faith alone we might say that one's down in there um, if we really zoned in on that we might say things like the atonement the sacrifice the fact that Jesus died on the cross that right that he rose if you deny the resurrection you may be a very nice person you know but i cannot call you a christian you know the the uh, the founder of the orthodox presbyterian church the opc jay gresham machen founder of westminster uh, westminster theological seminary wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, a wonderful little book, a great theological read if you're interested. Nice little book written in the 1930s. because I think it was the 30s, late 20s or 30s. He was a professor at Princeton, Princeton Seminary and Princeton was beginning to open itself up to theology it was coming over from Germany where Christians were beginning to say to be a Christian we don't really have to, the Bible was not literal and and Jesus didn't really rise from the dead he just rose in the hearts of believers and and Jesus, you know, and just denying all these things and it became hip In the 1920s in America, and so American seminaries, conservative, Presbyterian, Reformed seminaries started accepting this stuff, and Machen was like, whoa, 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 no, 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 and started planting flags down, and they kicked him out, and he said, I'll go started the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and started Westminster Theological Seminary just to say, no, we need a seminary that's going to push back on this. And he wrote his book called Christianity and Liberalism because it was Christian liberal theology that was denying what then became known as the fundamentals. And we think of fundamentalism now, we think of it as, you know, you don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do or guys who do. And and that's what fundamentalism kind of becomes. But that's not what it meant in its original days. In its original days, it meant... You, you know, fundamentalism was you hold to the fundamentals of the faith. Jesus was God. There's the Trinity. He rose from the dead. He died on the cross for our sins. We're saved by faith in him. There is there is judgment one day. You know, so all these kinds of things. Now, those are right here. And yes, we theology must divide us if you disagree here. But the minute we step out to these which we might hold as convictions really important convictions that are really near and dear to my heart, right, that I think are really important, that I think as Christians maybe we should wrestle over, you know, strenuously and then go get a drink together and have a meal together and 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 then say, we'll see you again next week. <laughs> Let's do it again. Um, you know, we can do that here, you know. And then as we start to move out, you know, maybe we have opinions. So, so. My view of baptism may be a convi- I'm convicted about infant baptism, okay? And again, we can debate it. Wait till the class on the sacrament someday, then we can really have it out. With that it might be a conviction. I want to wrestle over that. My view on speaking in tongues might be an opinion. Like, I think I have an opinion on that, but I'm, I'm, I struggle with trying to figure out what the heck was even going on in the New Testament with that. And so I don't, I, it's hard for me to come down with a really strong stand on one way or the other. So I might, I might push that out and I say, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'm, we might have less, of, less tension out here or whatever, you know, whatever the theological doctrines are, but that's different than these. Yeah, right. When it gets down to God and how we relate to him, how we're acceptable to him, you're right there at the heart of it that being said my convictions lead me to go to a Presbyterian church and not a Baptist one okay because I think Presbyterianism is right I mean by Presbyterianism now I just mean infant baptism so reformed churches believe in infant baptism and so forth but that view of baptism I believe is right and therefore I go to a church that does it and not a Baptist church however I would go to a Baptist church and worship there I will not go to a kingdom hall if I'm in a town and there's no Presbyterian church or Reformed church, I'll go to a Baptist church. I won't go to a kingdom hall and say, there's "Oh, no that's way you're what's here." In that door. Correct. Yeah, I mean not for worship. Okay. You know, I mean there might be even evangelistic reasons I might go there. I'm not saying it's sinful to cross the threshold. No, I'm just I saying, don't even yeah, that. I mean, right. You're not- that's right. I would not worship. I cannot worship there because I do not believe we are worshiping the same God. Okay. Now, and that and that distinction then needs to be just that with my Baptist brothers It's a distinction, not a division. And this is where we have to be careful that I don't make the opposite mistake then and start saying, my way of understanding the faith out here on convictions and opinions is the only way to do it. And therefore, I'm not really sure you even are a believer. (laughs) It's that kind of take that we end up having to people who are not in our denomination that, in my mind, just blows up John 17, 20 through 23. We cannot be that. And be answering Jesus' prayer that we be one as he and the Father are one. So we've got to be able not to fight. I want to wrestle, friendly wrestle, over these. But I can't fight and walk away and go, you're not even my brother. Got to be really, or sister, got to be really careful of that. Okay, any other questions on the theology is divisive argument? Okay, got to hold both those. Sometimes it needs to be divisive. But among true Christians, it cannot be, it should not be. Thirdly, and finally, in terms of um, objections, is the objection theology stifles spirituality. That is, this is the one I used to hear. You don't hear this language anymore, but it was big like in the 90s when I was in seminary. You'd hear people say, oh, the study of theology gives you head knowledge. (laughs) I want, ooh, I want heart knowledge. right?" And they say things like, again, like I said before, ooh, I just want, all this mumbo-jumbo theology stuff, I just love Jesus. And I remember Dr. Sproul saying, to me. He, his response to that was who's Jesus? <laughs> and the minute you start to answer it, said, enough with all this theology stuff, right? Like that, the point is, the point is when you say I just want to love Jesus, you're talking to, right? that's theology. Like the minute you tell me why you love Jesus, because he died, like, boom, theology. Stop right there. right? I mean, come on. We're doing theology. Don't tell me theology stifles spirituality. Now, Again, let me start by saying, do have to be concerned, right? James, D- James, the, the book of James, what does he say? Oh, you, you got good theology? Whoop de doo. Good for you. You believe there's one God? So does Satan. And you're like, oh, you know, so, so whoop de doo, you're a good theologian. It, the, the, the criticism may come out of a lot of stodgy theologians, people who love theology and don't love people. Or who love theology, but it never works it out into worship and into their life. Yes, people like that give theology a terrible name. Don't be that. Don't be that. that you know, that's James stuff. Don't, don't. No, you say you have faith. Show me your works. Like, let it work itself out. So, we, we do have to be careful about that. So, the argument is that head knowledge, theology, puts a wet blanket on the heart. And my response is, may it never be. If that's happening, we're really not doing theology we're doing academics, we're not doing theology. In fact, right, it's just the opposite. It should be just the opposite. Knowledge, the way, the metaphor I would use is that knowledge is like the cup or the container into which my love can be poured. Little bit of knowledge, little bit of love. Right, we're first getting to date someone. We have puppy love. I don't use that term anymore. I show how old I am. Uh, puppy. who calls it puppy love? Uh, but whatever, like, I don't know what that little flirty love is. Why? Because I don't know you. You know, you're kind of flirting with each other, but it's shallow. Of course, it's, what can, how can it be deep? I don't know you. Hey, you're married for 20 years. You say, I love her. Well, I love him, you go, wow, that carries some weight, right? I mean, it carries weight early on, but it can only be what it can be. As the knowledge grows and the love has, can fill it. If I really love somebody, I want to expand that. And so it is with God, right? I want to expand that knowledge so that I might love him more. If I love him knowing this much, how much will I love him when I know even more? And so theology should be expanding the container of our love for him. Pam asked me, and, or commented, it was a very insightful comment, that isn't the whole division between head and heart a bad one anyway? The answer is yes. That is a false dichotomy that you're developing head knowledge, but really we really want is heart knowledge. We do divide them, but it should never be. They should be taken together as one. Let me give you a text from Ephesians chapter 1. If you want, you can open there because it's a little, it's 16 through 21 verses. So um, Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what the Apostle Paul says and notice how he takes heart and understanding and just cinches them together. And that's why I want to say to this objection, false dichotomy. Yes, I do need to be careful of it. We all should, but it's not necessary. Starting in verse, what did I say? Verse uh, 16, verse 16. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and now listen to the theology, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Do you hear Trinity in there? Do you hear, I mean, he's just, this is the beauty of the way Paul does theology. It's not, a, the Bible's not a theology textbook. He just weaves theology poetically in there. It's, beautiful, right? You just got Trinity and you're like, I didn't even know it, right? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, theology, of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He takes senses, he takes our heart, our guts, and he takes our minds, our understanding, and just goes, yeah, all of it. This is what I'm praying for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, theology, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, not just that you may feel, but that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? which he worked in Christ when he, and the only reason I am keep reading is because this is just all theology, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. I mean, rich, rich theology, but notice what his prayer is. My prayer is that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened that you might understand so to him there's no head heart hey make sure it drops from the head to the heart it needs to but for paul it doesn't have to be there's no real distinction there okay so those are those are some objections and i think you may stumble on those every now and then and well when we get to barriers to theology i'll explain why let me just quickly go to d the goal of theology and hopefully we've already made this point both in the beginning and throughout The goal of theology and the goal of this class, and I tell my students at Chapel Field also, the goal even of our theology class, for them, it's not grades. And I say, frankly, it's not even that you come out of here with more knowledge about God, though that will be great, it's a great resource, but that my goal for you is that you know God. Not just know about God, but that you know God. This is eternal life, Father, that they know you. They know you. I can't know him without knowing about him. So they are linked. Like we said, theology, I, I need it. It's the cup. It's the, but the goal, brothers and sisters, is worship. Hallowing the name of God. And that is what we should do. If you got your Bible still open real quickly uh, to Ephesians, let's just look together because I want to show you how Paul does this. It's such a beautiful and wonderful model this is what you want your theology to be. Uh, is what you get in Paul's long. You might know it's a big run-on sentence, verses three through fourteen. Whew, run-on sentence, because Paul is so fired up with his theology, he can't. He's just writing. Forget punctuation. Who has time for it? It's just a run-on sentence. Your Bible might put some in there, but it's not there. It's a big long run-on Greek sentence. Okay. Now listen to this. It's again. Notice how the Trinity is woven into this. So it's Trinity, and it's rich, and then watch worship. Notice how we begin, verse 3. Praise be to God. Paul's theology begins with worship. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, here we go. Dump truck load of theology. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now, you just got a dump truck load of theology about the Father. Praise be to God the Father. Then theology. And then notice what he moves right to in verse 6. Back to praise to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, a dump truckload of theology about the sun. Praise to His glorious grace, which He has freely given us, In the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now he's talking about Jesus, the son. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, that is in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Why, Paul? Why does Jesus do all this? Back to praise, verse 12. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Right? Praise be to God. Let me tell you about what the Father does. He loved you before the foundation of the world. Praise be to God. Let me tell you about the Son so that you can join with me in giving praise to God. And then he continues on. Uh, in order that we might be, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, right? The Trinitarian nature of this, who is a deposit and a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I mean, Paul begins with praise, and that praise just, it just just weaves itself through the whole Thing, and that's how we want to do theology. The goal of any theological study, not just theology proper, the study of God, should be, must be praise and worship. That's where we want to drive ourselves to. Now, in le- any question at any time, throw it out there, or comment, or comment. Let's just think quickly through these last couple. Having come to the goal, let's just kind of move ourselves now toward actually doing theology, which we'll, we're doing it, of course, but... Uh, getting to some of the particulars next week. Let's just think very quickly through some of the barriers. Here's our goal. Here's the objections. What are some of the barriers? And they're pretty easy, simple things. The first is laziness. Okay. When people tell me I just want to love Jesus, it tells me they're lazy. It's not that I question their love for Jesus. Of course, I think they do. But when they say that as opposed to doing, because theology takes hard work, it does make smoke come out of your ears. You know you're reading it's just like pfft. you know, just you're just like wow what did that even mean how do i how does that square with this and uh, and what a lot of people do is go I, I don't know i don't know just let's sing a praise song and that's great sing the praise song then get back to the theology <laughs> go back to it don't don't let go get back in there so one of the great barriers that you and i have to watch out for is laziness it's easy just not to do it or to listen to someone else do it, and that is as much a temptation for me as it will be for you. Look, on the scale of theologians, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not. There's not even. There's not. A, there's not a level for me. There's an infinite number of guys who know so much that I've had the privilege to sit under in seminary, and so easy for me just to listen to them and let them do it for me. Now, that's good because I want to learn from them, but I need to work at it, you know? I need to do... Because what you're reading when you read a theology book is just the, the end work of someone else chewing through it and working it out. And, and that's good, get that, but then get in there for yourself and, and work it out. So we, are, myself included, have to be careful of laziness when it comes to theology, okay? Today, in our culture, if you have to work at it, it seems inauthentic. And so we just want worship that's spontaneous and it's just, that's authentic worship. And it can be, or it can be just really pathetic Bad, uninformed worship, all right? If we're going to praise God, read the Psalms. They don't just say, praise God, praise God, praise God. They say, praise God for your love is this and your loving kindness has done this and when we were here, you did this for us. I mean, it's just filled with stuff to praise him for and that's what we want our praise of God to be rich because we understand him. So we need to be on guard of laziness. The second obstacle our barrier to theology is distraction. And, uh, and in our culture, wow, this is really serious. Distraction, distraction, right? We just have a million things tugging at us. It's not just that we're lazy and don't want to dig in and do the work. I got a million things pulling at me. I got a million flashing screens, just calling for me, you know? I sit down to read the Bible, and it's like, bzz, bzz. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I mean, it does not take much. I'm like, oh, let's see, okay. You know, I've set it down, oh, oh, You know, just a million things calling, a million voices saying things, and we're just so easily distracted. Um, the third one, I, I think, is probably my script. Pride. Pride, it was pride. It was, oh, um, pride, pride. Pride hits us at different levels when it comes to theology. One, it hits me on the level is, I don't like bumping into the limits of my understanding. And theology will do that to you quickly. You will quickly realize these are really deep waters and I can't swim. And so we don't like that. Also, uh, you know, we have a lesson to learn from the Greeks. Pam, you were mentioning the Greeks. You know, Socrates said that you really cannot begin to learn until you admit you're ignorant. And until you do that, until you say, Socrates, the the Socratic method of teaching was by asking you questions, or if you would ask me a question, instead of just giving you an answer, I'll probe back with some questions. And Socrates' goal was to get you to say, I don't know. When you said that, we can begin. We can begin now to build. The problem, the barrier that we have to learning is we don't want to admit we don't know. You know, But there's something very liberating to saying, I don't know, let's start, I'm humble here. It's when we think we know, as the Bible says, anyone who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know. Like right off the bat, I don't care what it is, Paul says in Corinthians, anyone who thinks he knows, right off the bat, I know you don't know like you ought to know. So, and we want to be right. And so what happens in a lot of theological argument is, I become more passionate about defending my position than saying, I want to believe what's biblical. And if I'm wrong, then I want to repent of it. My dad has, somebody gave to him, and I remember ever as a kid, him telling me about it that, and explaining it to me, the little plaque across his desk that says in Latin, uh, 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 oh. Vince, is it, Vincent omnia veritas, truth conquers all. And my dad's saying to me, Always, whether or not we always do it, but he would say always come open to let the Bible prove you wrong. Don't, don't come in saying I'm right and let me find the verses that say what I want. Mm-hmm. Come willing to let the Bible conquer you, right? To, truth conquers all. Let the truth come in and have that kind of spirit as we come. So laziness, and I'm sure we could come up with other, basically every sin, but laziness, inattentiveness and distraction and pride. Okay, the next thing I had up there, uh, capital E, so I'll go back to here. Um, Capital E was the uh, next Uh, F, tensions. When we're doing theology, there is a tension that we must maintain. And we don't like tensions, and so we tend to eliminate the tension by compromising on one side or the other. And the very important tension that we must maintain when we do theology is a tension between the incomprehensibility, there's a big word, the incomprehensibility of God on the one hand and the knowability of God on the other hand. All right? The incomprehensibility of God, man, versus the knowability, if that's even really a word. I guess it is now that's about that's a tension it's pulling us right both ways and we need to as we start down this road we've got to hold this because another way of saying this another way of saying this and it's virtually the same thing but it might add a little different dimension is the tension between mystery and revelation and this gets back to the pride issue because we don't like mystery I don't like incomprehensibility. Right? I want to know the answer. And sometimes God says, "No. I haven't I'm not revealing that answer to you. You're you're the creature, deal with it." <laughs> and and we need to and we need to say, "Yes, yeah, of course, I worship you." The the challenge of theology or one of the challenges of theology is knowing where, I told you about planting flags of truth, right? Jesus rose from the dead. I will plant that flag there and I will defend it. I will go to the mat over that doctrine. But you also know have to, uh, you have to know where to plant your question marks. <laughs> These are things I don't know. I'm not sure they are revealed. I'll push. I'm going to push, probe, question, wrestle, But I may not get a full resolution to this, and you know some of these challenges, and we can do our best to try to wrestle through them when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the fact that human beings are really free. These are not contradictions. Don't ever do that. Contradictions cannot be true. That's not a contradiction, it's a tension. The Bible says these things. The Bible holds human beings really accountable and responsible for what they do, and at the same time says God works all things. He works all things. Joseph says to his brothers, brothers, what you meant for evil. God meant for good. And you're like, back up. Who meant it? And he says, yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes, God meant it, and the brothers meant it, and they meant it for evil, and God meant it for good, and you gotta, you gotta, you're like, wait, that, can't, that just it's blowing up my categories, and here comes the smoke out of the ears, and you've got to say, okay, I want to ask, I want to push, I want to probe, I want to wrestle through that, but I, I'm, I know that I'm going to be left with some question marks, and that's okay. And some of your question marks may go away. You may come to enlightenment. You may come to some understanding on some of those things. And question marks get relieved. That's a wonderful and glorious thing. As you grow in the faith, that will happen. Things that didn't make sense to you when you were younger or younger in the faith, now start to, you start to see the re- rationale behind them. And question marks go away. Great. But there will always forever be question marks because you are finite. And God is infinite. And one of the things that I've really come to appreciate maybe over the past five years of my own Christian life is that the question marks are reaffirmations to me of the truth of God. Not, they don't discourage me because when you get the question marks, take, take you, you try to understand the dual natures of Jesus, that he's God and man together. Now, we, we, I can tell you how the church has said it, and we can wrestle through, but, boy, you're up against mystery. Or the threeness and the oneness of God, the Trinity, that you'll hear Dr. Sherratt talk about when he comes, and he'll do a great job. And man, there's, there's tension there and there's challenge. We can say a lot about it, but boy, there's all kinds of question marks. And what my tendency used to be is, no, I can't, because if I can't explain it, that means it might not be true. And then one day, it was like, bing, it hit me. If I could explain everything about God, he wouldn't be that great. Like, that would be kind of pathetic if my little puny brain could say, no, I can explain all this. Of course, if he is the infinite God, then my little brain is not going to be able to comprehend these things. Like, that's, that just reaffirms to me the fact that, yeah, oh, yes, 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 he's God. Reaffirms to me the truth of God. And so I want I want us to come into this knowing one, this is a disclaimer right off the bat, I'm not gonna have all the answers. Okay, so there's question marks in my own life. But also to know that there's gonna be mystery and we should cherish that. We should say, yes, that should make me worship. It should make me say, you are God and I'm not. And when you hold these two in balance to realize that God is the infinite, incomprehensible one, meaning incomprehensible in that he cannot fully be contained. Not that he can't be understood, that he can't be contained in my explanations or my doctrinal statements. He cannot be contained. I tell my students at Chapel Field, I say, I have a water bottle. I take the little cap off that thing. I say, this is your brain. And it's being really charitable toward a lot of them. But I I say, this is your brain. And I say, and God is the Pacific Ocean. And that's really, it's almost, it's blasphemous. Because the Pacific Ocean is so puny, okay? But for the illustration, it's all I got, okay? So God is the Pacific Ocean, and this is your brain. I mean, you can dip the cap into the Pacific Ocean and come up and say, I got the, I've, I've got the Pacific Ocean in my cap. And you're right, you're right. But you're terribly wrong, right? So, but it's both of those. Yes, it does, it's not that your little cap can't get in and get some Pacific Ocean. But don't ever think you've got the Pacific Ocean in your cap. But also don't be discouraged and go, I guess this cap's no good. Can't get the Pacific Ocean. Keep dipping. (laughs) Go back in there, right? Explore some more of the Pacific Ocean and explore some more. And when you when you lay hold of that, wow, then to me, it explodes with excitement because it tells you you'll be doing this for all eternity. This is the the joy that you get from learning and knowing God is inexhaustible. Even in heaven, in the new creation, you will be learning. You know why? Because in heaven you don't become infinite. You're still a creature. And God is still infinite. And you're forever going to be dipping your now expanded bottle cap into the <laughs> infinite, <laughs> a much more beautiful bottle cap and wonderful. But you're still going to be dipping it in there and learning more. And his mercies and his glories will be new every morning. That's the Once you say, ah, yes, he's uncontainable but he is really knowable there's mystery but in his mercy he has also revealed truth to me he's kept secrets but he has truly given me some and enough and I'll trust him that what he has given me is sufficient so that if I haven't been told I don't need to know trust him and once I lay hold of that I'm in a good place so we have kind of laid the groundwork now for our doing theology, right? We've we've laid that. Now, uh, to, oh, oh, okay, last thing. Last thing, and then we're done. And that is, and so now I want to bring back what we said in the beginning, hallowed be thy name. Then in the middle, we said, the goal of theology is worship. And I want to end with G, the posture of theology, and encourage this to be our posture as we go through this 10 weeks. And that is, The posture for theology should be humility. Humility. Back to the Psalms. Psalm 111. Again, what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord. I love what Tim Keller says about the fear of the Lord. He says, the fear of the Lord is that awesome wonder. Makes you tremble. It's got a dimension of fear to it. Makes you uneasy sometimes. Don't forget God's a consuming fire but it's majestic. And that kind of reverent, fearful awe, take your breath away kind of thing that humbles you and is is where it should be the posture of theology. If we come that way, then we will come ready to worship. We will come ready to receive. We will come ready to hear. It's like Saint Anselm said, the great theologian of around the year one thousand, right at the turn of the first millennium A D, when he said theology is faith seeking understanding. It's it starts from a posture of faith and trust and love seeking evermore. Right? It's faith seeking understanding. It's not me trying to get understanding and then I'll, you know, I'll decide what I think about this. It's humility. It's, I trust you, I've seen you, I've, I've experienced you, I've seen what you've done in history, I trust you, and I want to deepen that. So our posture should be humility, should be dependence upon the Holy Spirit as we come, not with some kind of autonomous thing, I'll figure all this out, but really relying upon him and his mercy. Okay, let me pray as we go. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be our vision, that, Father, indeed, you would teach us to Hallow your name, but more than that, to make the hallowing of your name be a top priority to us. Father, we pray that as we take this trip along this class to study the doctrine of who you are, Father, you would give us eyes to see. As the psalmist says, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word. Give us a spirit of humility, we pray, as we come before you and fill our hearts with worship and praise. I pray for all gathered here this evening. Bless us as we go our way, bring us back to our homes, and then safely again next week, Father, if it be your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.